0: Hello and welcome to the History Show on Near fm My name is Cahill Brennan and if you would like to listen to this or previous episodes of the program, go to nearpodcast.org forward slash pcast forward slash. I'm joined as always by my co-presenter John Dorney from the irishstory.com website. This week we are very pleased to be joined by Professor David Fitzpatrick of Trinity College Dublin. Professor Fitzpatrick has edited a new collection of essays by the Trinity History Workshop and published by Lilliput Press called Terror in Ireland, 1916-1923. Professor Fitzpatrick, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. One of the first questions raised by the book is, what is terrorism and how do we define it?
1: Well, we've applied a very broad definition of terror and terrorism. um, Essentially, uh, embracing terror, the climate of fear being created by any source, whether it's the state or paramilitaries, republican, loyalists or otherwise. So we don't um, suggest that it's coming in any particular direction. Our concern is the ways in which uh, fear was aroused among particularly civilian populations and minorities um, who were affected by the extraordinary events of the revolutionary period.
0: What would you say about some people who would uh, define terrorism as strictly non-state actors, wouldn't take into account, say, for example, the use of terror by a state while prosecuting uh, a war, trying to suppress a rebellion?
1: Well, I think it's not up to historians to make judgments of a moral character, uh, condemning or accepting particular forms of terrorism. Uh, That's why we prefer to take an ecumenical approach, Uh, leave it up to the reader to make the moral judgments. Um, And instead, uh, what we've tried to do is to establish the conditions under which various parties found it necessary to use terror try to explain why that happened and what the consequences were for those affected by it.
2: Hi David, John Dorney here. Hello John. Do you think that there's an objective uh, an objective definition of terrorism? I mean in conflicts people always call the other side terrorists as a term of abuse but is there an objective difference between say conventional warfare, guerrilla warfare and what we call terrorism do you think?
1: I don't think there's an objective difference. Um, particularly when we're looking at unofficial wars where people differed fundamentally about whether a war, a war was going on or not, uh, it's extremely important to avoid that sort of judgment. Uh, so in this book we have chapters which look at the uh, use of terror by the state, um, say in the reprisals which occurred in Balbriggan, where Rosso Mahoney and myself have both written accounts of the, um, the way in which civilians were punished and their interests damaged. In September 1920, following the killing of two policemen. But we also have accounts of the uh, effects of terror uh, conducted by Republican paramilitaries in County Cork, uh, in both Dunmanway and Kilmichael. Um, uh, and some of that terror was directed, um, it is argued, specifically against Protestants. So we're looking at, at many different uh, ways in which terror was applied and many different communities and groups which suffered from it.
2: When we think of wars, we tend to think of some violence as being legitimate in a war. We think of combatant against combatant. Do you think something becomes terrorism when it targets non-combatants? Is that the crucial difference?
1: I think that terror can actually be applied to combatants as well as non-combatants. For example, in Jane Leonard's account of uh, The Killings of Bloody Sunday Morning, the 21st of November 1920 in Dublin, uh, you're looking at terror specifically directed against the persons believed to be intelligence agents. As she shows, uh, less than half of those killed appear, in fact, to have been intelligence officers. But that's a case where you have a very specific group targeted, Uh, and the aim of that is a rational aim. It is to strike fear into all of those uh, who might think of providing intelligence on behalf of the state. Um, But I think that's less terror directed against combatants, particularly armed combatants, doesn't usually work very well because combatants are in a, a position to some extent to defend themselves, to build barricades, to retreat into encampments where they can't easily be attacked. And so most terror in these informal wars that we're talking about in the case of Ireland 1916-23, mo- most terrorists are in fact relatively vulnerable and undefended civilians.
0: Some of the essays in the book deal not just with violence, but also with harassment and intimidation. What effect do you think this had on local populations?
1: Well, I think the the effect of intimidation, of social ostracism, of threats and menaces, is probably greater. It has a a, a wider and uh, devastating effect than actual killing. Killing is the tip of the iceberg, and uh, relatively few people were killed in the Irish Revolution when you think of other European conflicts of the period. Um, I, I don't know to what extent particular populations were actually driven out of Ireland uh, as a result of uh, terror. My own feeling is that because Irish populations, Catholic and Protestant, over so many centuries have got used to intimidation and menace, that they've become extraordinarily resilient. And although you'll have people fleeing their districts, a good many of them would come back again pretty quickly and settle into roughly the same environments and culture that they had left. And an example of that would be something we don't discuss in the book, unfortunately, because we had no contributors associated with Trinity College who could participate in the workshop. Uh, but that is the way that um, Catholic workers from the shipyards and engineering works in Belfast in, 19, in, in a series of expulsions, 1920, 21, 22, and so on. They, they, they go back fairly quickly after the horrible period of arson and destruction has taken place. Now, some never went back. But there's more resilience than one would suspect on the basis of the
2: propaganda put out by all sides. When we think about uh, Irish political violence, I think if you look at the 19th century and you look at the Fenian movement, you can see kind of two strands of, of thinking about political violence. In 1867, the Fenians are very concerned that they look like legitimate combatants, that they fight openly. But there's also a tradition which we associate with the Land League or before that with secret societies, which is more to do with intimidation and nighttime raids and anonymous killings, and I think in the War of Independence you can see continuities with both of those ideas. Would you agree there?
1: I think that's a very good point. Um, The the feeling that there was a sort of noble and honorable tradition, uh, particularly of Republican rebellion and resistance, uh, certainly came into conflict with uh, the so-called agrarian tradition of violence and intimidation, and that led to a lot of friction between the Fenians and the agrarian rebels from the 1860s onwards. Um, And during the period that this book concerns, I think there's a movement towards um, coarsening, shall we say, of the conduct of the uh, Republican movement. Uh, Fergal McGarry, for example, in an early chapter in the book, discusses 1916 and finds that the rebels had a relatively clean record in other words, they tried to adhere to what they thought was a conduct of honorable rebellion laying down their own rules basically McGarry in fact i don't know whether he's right or not but he he puts the greater blame on the um on the uh, the army uh, for the killing of civilians and for acts of brutality and barbarism in nineteen sixteen and i think what you can see over the period is this sense of uh, of an honorable war conducted according to Boy Scout rules, if you like, Uh, becomes rather worn as the guerrilla campaign got underway and intensified in 1920 to 21. It became extremely difficult for either side to adhere to any um, set of decent rules of combat. Um, Now, the Republicans still believed that they were fighting a war as distinct from a rebellion. Uh, And Tom Barry is an example of somebody who was emphatic that that was what he was doing, and therefore that one must show proper um, uh, consideration for prisoners and civilians, so that when he was presenting his memoir uh, and trying to explain what he had done with the West corps Brigade, uh, he insists that its conduct was almost invariably honorable, and in accordance with these rules, unlike the brutal, uncivilized behavior of the auxiliaries and the soldiers that uh, were in combat with the West Cork Brigade. Now, uh, I think that, that it's an understandable point of view on Barry's part to try to draw a link between the tradition of 1916 and what was happening at, at Kilmichael, uh, um, for example, in 1920. But it's something which is difficult to sustain when one looks closely at the evidence. And that's what Eve Morrison has done in a discussion of the famous Barry claim that there was a, uh, it was only a, as a result of the so-called false surrender of certain auxiliaries that they were killed when in um, what appeared to be a defenseless position rather than taken prisoner. Uh, so that, that is the sort of consideration we have here, not making a judgment about the morality of Barry's conduct, but about the, um, the division between his, the legend that he created and the reality as it is slowly being unearthed through material such as witness statements in the Bureau of Military History uh, together with interviews with survivors which have at last become available um, um, in, a, in a wider form um, and are no longer anonymous.
0: Are you surprised that there is still so much debate and so much controversy, not just about Kilmichael, but on a whole range of other issues to do with this period that uh, attract so many column inches It seems to have escaped the pages of academic journals and it's now in the mainstream, people asking questions about issues like Kilmichael.
1: I do think it's extraordinary, certainly in international terms, that there is still such moral passion about what was going on. And of course, where you have people who believe very strongly in the morality of a certain sort of struggle, they will also believe strongly in the bad faith uh, of those who deny that morality. And I think a lot of the bitterness which has crept into the debate recently, uh, much of it directed against the student peter hart uh, it emerges from that and of course well you then have to ask why uh, is this still a matter of such moral importance for so many people in ireland and beyond ireland um, and the answer must be some sense that uh the continuing struggles in northern ireland um uh, were a continuation of what happened in 1916 to 23 and for many people, if that earlier conflict were tainted, if it were not seen to be an honourable war prosecuted in a noble cause in, in a decent fashion, that would create problems uh, for interpretation of more recent um, uh, the more recent movement in Northern Ireland, particularly. So there's certainly an element of that, but it goes far beyond that. It's, it's, the, the public interest goes well beyond those who have any particular political um, position about Northern Ireland, and it involves a great many people who think that the republic has gone wrong in some way. It's become tainted. It's politicians are crooks in the pockets of developers um, that they've sold their country. And I think many people are looking back to a golden age when this was not the case, when you had clean, decent revolutionaries not tainted in the way that they're... Uh, hypocritical successes um, in politics appear to
2: be. Going back for a second to the, the 1920s, we have talked about Republican paramilitaries and, and what they they did. What Republicans themselves argued at the time was that they were living under what Todd Andrews called a t- uh, tyranny tempered by assassination. What do you think about uh, state forces? Were they guilty of terrorism in this period?
1: Well I believe in many cases they were and for much the same reason that um, uh, Republicans uh, fell into terrorism. Now, there are different sorts of terror. I mean, there's strategic terror, which is planned in advance. Uh, for example, the uh, property reprisals conducted in the martial law zone in 1921 were designed with a purpose, even though it may seem a horrible purpose. It was There was a logic to it. That is, that if you punish the families and shelterers of supposed Republican terrorists, then they will provide information or they will no longer provide shelter for those terrorists.